0: Could you take out your Bibles and open up to the book of Titus? If you weren't with us last week, we are starting a book and we are on the island of Crete. And if you can imagine yourself, we are on a balmy 70 degree shoreline looking out at the Mediterranean Sea. And that's why I wore my, I was looking for my really good Hawaiian shirt, but my wife threw it out. So all I have left is this one. So if you want to bring it where in your nice Hawaiian church, you're more than welcome. We had a number in the first service, but it is kind of cold out there, but who cares? Brave it, tough it out. We are the church of Christ. Onward, Christian soldiers. Anyhow, so imagine yourself, we're here in an island. It's funny, when I uh, was going to my senior year in high school, I uh, joined an AP English class, and I had to get all of these books over the summer, 14 books, and I had to read them. One of the first books I got, I remember going to the library and getting the book, and it had a nice scene of an island on the front, and I read the back, and it sounded really good. So it was about these boys that were shipwrecked on an island, and I thought, man, this is going to be a fun book. Because remember when I was a kid, I, I uh, would watch this movie, my, my family would go watch the Swiss Family Robinson, it was one of our favorite movies. We'd pack into our station wagon, put sleeping bags on the top, drive into a movie theater and watch The Swiss Family Robinson about these people shipwrecked on an island. They had, you know, a tree house for a house. I always wanted that. They rode tigers and ostriches and battled pirates with crooked legs, and they swam in waterfalls. And Man, I couldn't wait to read this book. This is going to be fun. I turned it to the front. The title of the book was Lord of the Flies. If you know anything about Lord of the Flies, you start reading it and you go, this is a really disturbing, dark book. It's a really simple story. These boys are from an English school, a very civilized English school, and they get shipwrecked. Actually, their plane crashes into an island during a nuclear war. Very nice backdrop for a book. And uh, they start deciding who's going to lead all of these boys? And this guy steps forward. His name's Ralph. They say he's a good-looking guy, very kind. And he takes his conch shell and he blows it and all the boys come streaming to the front of the beach. And he says, all right, this is going to be the shell of order and anybody who wants to speak has to have the shell. Very civilized. But then there's another guy that he elected to be a hunter. This guy's name's Jack. Jack was a bad dude. Jack ended up hunting pigs on the island when he was supposed to keep the lookout fire. He didn't do that because he liked hunting pigs. And him and his buddy, they would put on war paint, and they'd sever the head of a pig, which was put on a pole, and flies would be around. That's called Lord of the Flies. And actually, Lord of the Flies is an old term in the Bible for the devil, or Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies. But the whole thing was dark. It was really demented. And it was about these boys who were civilized, turned into bitter savages. Terrible. And in the story, there's this beast or monster in the forest. And the little kids were scared. And so Jack got all his buddies to go hunt the beast, hunt the monster, kill the monster. And one guy, Simon, who was supposed to be like a Christ figure, he, had, he was very nice. He, he realized the beast was this parachutist that died and was hanging in the trees. And he realized the beast didn't exist. And he ran out to tell all the boys, there's no beast, don't worry about it. When he went to tell the boys, they thought he was the beast coming out of a dark forest and they killed him. And it's a great book, really good book. Anyhow, Simon said this during the book, he said this, Maybe there is a beast, maybe the beast is only in us. And the idea of this book is that even if you take civilized people without any kind of rule, without any kind of leadership, we're kind of dark and get out of hand. And I want to start with that because what we go into has this idea in mind. Isaiah 26.10 says, Even in a land of uprightness, even in a place that's great, the wicked will still do evil. In other words, you can bring people to a nice island, play a steel drum, give them pineapples and grass skirts, but there's still something inside of us that needs to be corralled. And if it's not, it can become like Lord of the Flies. So what is it that corrals people? We're going to talk about that in Titus. And some people don't like this. They don't like it at all. Our culture hates this. But if you could follow along with me, we are doing a verse-by-verse study in Titus. We're starting today in verse 5 of chapter 1. And the title is Leadership Matters. It really matters. And I'm sitting on this stool today. I'm not taking the pulpit for a, a reason. So I don't look like I am above you. I still want the Scripture to be above me and all of us. Because I'm not above you. And this verse sometimes is taken as a way for the pastor. Huh? You they get that long face, and they say, you must obey me. No, I'm going to talk in a squeaky voice and sit on a chair. No, let's just read Isaiah chapter 1, verse 5 through 9. Follow along. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the challenge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable. Lover, a lover of good, you could also say a lover of good people, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Let me pray, and then we'll start. Lord, I do pray that uh, my instruction is sound. I pray your Spirit helps me to make my instruction sound, and I pray for the hearers that they'd understand my intent It's to serve the church and not myself. We love you, Father. It's in Christ's name. Amen. It begins here in verse 5 where Paul says, there's a reason I left you in Crete. Let's talk about Crete for a second and understand what's going on. Crete is an island in the Mediterranean. Homer, who wrote the Odyssey, says, Crete is this island of a hundred cities. It's about, I'll show you how big it is compared to Michigan. It takes up about, you know, from Detroit to Grand Rapids in length. It's the biggest Greek island in the Mediterranean Sea. Those are the major capitals of today. There's probably on the island, if there's no tourists, about 600,000 inhabitants. But there's, they have, their prime income is tourism and they have anywhere on a weekly basis to 20 to 30,000 tourists a week. So it's a populated island. Those red dots are smaller islands, fishing islands. And then you have the triangles There's mountains. It's mountainous in the middle where there's a lot of skiing and hiking. And it's a beautiful island, actually. And if you went from one end to the other, it's about a 3 days walk. Well, this is the island Titus was sent to by Paul. It's out in the Mediterranean. So where did the Christians come from? Because he says here, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order. And the idea is, There's something already happening, and I want you to work on that. Well, in the book of Acts, if you remember, Peter gave the very first sermon. He's preaching in Aramaic, but everybody hears him in their own native tongue. And some of the people that heard him, it says here, are Cretans, people from the island of Crete. They were Jews who went to Pentecost, who were there at Pentecost. They actually went to Jerusalem during the Passover. They heard Peter, and they became Christians, and they went back to the island. So in a way, some of these Christians are very raw, very young Christians. There's some debate if Paul visited the island in between his first and second missionary journey. People don't know, but there's an idea that maybe he started some churches. But to give you a context, it's a big island, lots of people, lots of cities, Titus is sent there. All right, what's he sent to do? Look at verse, verse 5. It says, you might put what remained into order. So he's sent there to actually set people straight. The Greek word, I can't say too well, it's means to put the order to basically what already was started complete, to basically take a young church and mature it. Even the idea of straightening it out Paul said, One of the worries I have for the church is that people will worm their way in and start twisting it, twisting the doctrine. And Titus went there to make sure it stayed straight, sound doctrine, straight line, to straighten it out. So the first reason Titus was sent there is to make sure the church was growing and being led in the right way. Before we go any further, I. I think we need to talk a little bit about the church, the purpose of the church, because leadership only makes sense, and the need for good leadership only makes sense if you see the church in the right way. Because I think the American church is often, it's often viewed as something it's not meant to be. I think there's three ways to view the church. I think the first two ways I'm going to present to you is how your average American Christian views the purpose of the church. But I want you to see the third way is the intent. I think some people really have heard this said, the church is a hospital where sick people come to be cured. Where people come, so they will receive grace, they will receive sermons that soothe them, and when they leave, they'll say, man, I felt good. I feel good. So the church's objective is to make you who've been fighting the world all week to come in here and just to be encouraged. There's truth to that, but it's not the whole truth, it's partial truth. Some people think the church is a stage where the pastor is funny, everybody do the Michigan rag, jazz hands, jazz hands, wow, he's a funny guy. Man, wasn't that a funny sermon, or boy, that was a good sermon, and the music's intention is to just wow me and get me caught up in a moment. It's a stage. And you know what? If we don't put on a good show, there's a lot of churches that put on a really good show. And truthfully, I'll be honest with you, even when I, when I prepare to preach, today's a tough one because I'm going more extemporaneously, and I know my words. Sometimes I say things that are not too good. They aren't. I worry, and I worry that people are like, he's not polished. He's kind of a hack. That guy, he's really not a performer. Let's let's get a good preacher up there. Come on. In a way, I think that's what Americans want. They want to be entertained. But what is the church? According to Paul, there's a metaphor he uses often. And if you look at it, it is really powerful. We We are the bride of Christ. Now, when a man stands up here to get married, and he says, I do, and a wife says, I do, there are two things she is committing to and two things the husband wants from her. He wants her to love him with everything she's got, to build an intimacy. And a bride, he does not want a bride who sleeps with other men, who's an adulteress. In in church language, adultery is called idolatry, where we run after everything else but our lover. Who's our lover? Is Christ. I want you to go to Second Corinthians eleven. Take a look at this. Watch how Paul views the church. This is really powerful, and this is why Titus is sent to the island. Second Corinthians chapter eleven, verse one. So Corinthians, whenever you read like Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, it's a city where there is a church and he's writing a letter to that city. So the Corinthians are Corinth and it's 2 Corinthians. It's not like Donald Trump said, two Corinthians. It's second letter to the Corinthians. And he says this to the Corinthian church. Verse 1, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. In other words, this church is getting these super apostles, these guys that are probably dressed in ties, look really good, talk really well. And Paul's saying, now, yeah, but they don't, they don't know you like I know you. Now listen to what he says in verse 2. He says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin, Christ, this is the bride analogy, verse three, but I'm afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his cunnings, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So he's writing to the church to say, I am jealous for you, stay with your husband. That is why he sent Titus, who's assigning elders to the church to keep us in love with our Savior. To not let this island, this church, become Lord of the Flies. But to be a pure, singular to the gospel church. That's our job. So how does he do this? I kind of i read through it. He does this by, it's very simple, Titus says it. How do you keep the church on a straight, narrow, to straighten them out? He appoints elders. He appoints elders. That's what it says in Titus chapter 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order, meaning keeping the church, a singular bride, and appoint elders in every town. So in this town, in this island, there were many cities, and he was to appoint elders. So let's talk about what this means. First of all, the word appoint means Paul gave authority to Titus, who gave authority to leaders to be put in a church. Now, that word authority, we hate it. I hate it, actually, because I was actually meeting with our elders. I'll talk to you about them in a second. And a couple of the elders said, sometimes, Chris, you need to lead a little bit more than you do. And the reason why I don't is because I know the atmosphere of this whole word of authority. We hate authority. We're Americans. You can't tell me what to do. Who do you think you are? Because you stand up on a pulpit? I'm not going to listen to you. That's our nature. And so when we're put in charge, the only way we can lead is if people allow us to. I want to show you something interesting. Go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. And this is why I'm sitting on this chair because I'm underneath the Bible. I'm not trying to lord this over. See, some people will use this as like this, Josh, I'm your pastor, and you doggone it. He better do what I say. I mean, they get, you know, this pastor, sometimes pastors walk around like this. Some put on a tie, and they walk like this. I've seen some walk like this. They they shake, and they kind of hip-hop when they talk. "Oh, oh, Oh, what in the world's wrong with you? That's the Spirit of God. Why don't you walk like that at work? Karen, you know, I'm your waiter. Hey, well, stop that. What is wrong with you? Anyhow, look at Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13 and verse 7. This is where I'm going to take a lower position as I read this. So no, I'm not lording this over you. Verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So this is saying we are, as leaders, to be examples for you to follow. Ooh, that's heavy. Now look at verse 17. It's even heavier. Hebrews 13, 17. Oh, <laughs> this word's Bad. Rick Dolphin is going to hate this word. (laughs) I like to pick on Rick. He knows it. Verse 17, obey your leaders. Submit to them. Submit. Why? Why? For they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. What? That means, here's what that means. When I die... I'm going to see Jesus, and he's going to say, so how did you do with Kent City Baptist Church? Did you tell them the truth, or did you entertain them? So tell me, did you tell them about the gospel? Did you tell them about that's called eternal damnation, or did you just make them feel good? Well, Jesus, uh, you mean I was responsible for what I? Yes, that's what it says. It says, For they are keeping watch over your souls as those will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Meaning, encourage them as they are trying to perform their job. So, this is saying there's some bit of authority a pastor is given because we're responsible to help direct, or like Paul said, set in order this body. So it doesn't become Lord of the Flies. Who does he appoint? Elders. This word elders means really, at it's base root. In the Greek, it's presbyter. So if you get Presbyterian, it's just our word for elder, but it means wise, the idea experienced. But we'll use other words for this, like pastor. You might have heard of bishop. But the whole idea is a wise person who oversees, like an umbrella, kind of helps have. Leadership, where people are protected underneath their cover, and their cover is the one that gets attacked. That's the idea. Minister, pastor, bishop, overseer. Some people say, why doesn't it have priest? Because that's not what priest means. Priest is a person who offers sacrifices to God. And did you know we are all priests? Priests of believers. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, you offer sacrifices of Praise. I want to show you what uh, Peter says about this role. First Peter 5 has the same flavor I just read to you. But elder is a uh, a shepherd. First Peter 5, verse 1, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as partaker in a glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that kind of like you're sheep and we're supposed to shepherd you. But I'm not calling you smelly or stupid, so don't blame me. All right. <laughs> I'm kidding you. See, that when I go extemporaneously, I say dumb things. Look, like keep reading. All right. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight. That's the idea of eldership, to oversee. Not under compulsion, meaning, oh, i got to do this job. No, willingly, I want to do this, Lord. I'll do it, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge. Not domineering over those in your charge. Why don't men read this? Not domineering over those over your charge. The idea is that I am one of you. I'm just given a role to lead, not to demand. But be examples to the flock. And here's when the sheep... Chief Shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. That's a good deal. So, how do we keep the church on the straight and narrow being the bride of Christ? We appoint elders. We have appointed elders at our church. Actually, we have a what I'd call a three-headed system where we have the staff, me, Pastor Ken, Pastor Jared, and Pastor Derek. We see the church. We oversee the church. We have deacons that are servants of the church. And then we have elders that help with the spiritual direction and leadership of the church. And we have four of those, Doug Scott, Dan Spolstra. We have a new one, Jerry Bile, and Arnie Winnell. Joins Ken and I as leadership. So how do we determine a number? Because does the Bible talk about number? Actually, when you read scriptures, you could make the case that each town has one elder. But if you read Acts chapter 20, one town had a lot of elders. So there's no specific number. Some people get really mad about that. For a while in our denomination, they would call two offices. There's only pastor and deacon. And if you're out of that, you're out of God's will. That's not not necessarily true. However, it might not talk about numbers, but it does talk about the kind of person that can only be an elder. The kind, the character, the heart. And that's what we're going to look at right now. So what we're going to do is I'm going to describe for you what Titus, how Titus describes an elder and how Scripture talks about it. And we're going to work backwards. We're going to talk about what an elder is by responsibility. What is his responsibility primarily? We're also going to talk about an elder, what is his character like? Because truthfully, remember when I read you are to imitate the elders? The elder needs to be the example for the rest so you can follow good leadership. Because you are supposed to be like this too. Don't just say, well, only the elders are supposed to be not drunk. (laughs) So I can drink because I'm not an elder. No, imitate us. And then we're going to talk about, are you ready? I know I shouldn't do it. But we have to do this. Right, Jared? But I don't want to do this. But we have one more thing to talk about. Should I do it? Gender. What is the gender of an elder? Let's read. Let's start with that. Because that can get hot. But let's just read. And I'm going to emphasize some words and, and see if you can tell me what gender the elder is starting in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. That's what we went through already. If anyone's above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer is God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to the rebuke of those who contradict it. I'm going to say it like this. Our conviction at Kent City Baptist Church is that elders are male. That's our conviction. Here's what's called. We have in our next step class, we teach absolutes, convictions, preferences. Preferences are issues that the Bible doesn't really talk about that really shouldn't be a big deal. For instance, the color of our chairs, the color of this carpet, if I should wear a tie or not. You know the Bible doesn't talk about that? If I should have a suit on or not. Should I have open-toed shoes on or not? Oh. That's a preference. Who cares, really? We care an awful lot, but they shouldn't matter. Then we have what are called absolutes on the top. So preferences on the bottom, absolutes on the top. Absolutes are those things, if you really are a Christian, you should affirm these things. For instance, if you really are a Christian, and it is an absolute teaching that Jesus is both God and man. Jesus was born of a virgin. The scriptures are God's infallible word that he's coming back again, and you're saved by grace through faith. Those are absolutes. If you don't hold to those, I wonder about your walk with Christ. However, in between these, there's what are called convictions. Convictions are beliefs based on your interpretation of Scripture, and you try to the best of your ability to understand it rightly. And they matter. It really matters. And so for us, our conviction about eldership is that they're male. The first reason we say that is because just from biblical authority. When you interpret with integrity, that means interpret in context, historically, grammatically. When you do it, it sure seems like he's only talking about men. I've never met a woman who's called a husband until maybe the last 20 years. So when an elder is to be a husband of one wife, that's a male title. Or he is a male pronoun. Is is a male pronoun. Second reason why we hold to the conviction that men should be elders is what we call unity and diversity. God's design is a complementary design. I can talk about that in marriage. In marriage, it's clear, God says in Ephesians 5, Husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Wives, respect your husbands. 1 Corinthians 11, man is the head of the house. Wife compliments that house. So does that mean women are inferior? No, it's unity. Unity means we are equal. Men and women are equal. We are both made in the image of God. First, uh, Genesis 1.27, I've made man, male and female. Meaning, we both represent the image of God equally. Number two, we're of same substance. When Adam out was, a rib was taken out of Adam, he looked at Eve and he said, She's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Same substance. And same worth in the eyes of God. Look at 1 Peter 3. I want you to go to this because this is a very interesting verse. In so many ways. 1 Peter 3, 7. This is talking about how husbands and wives should get along and their roles to reflect Christ because in chapter 2, it says when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't retaliate. He, he basically trusted himself. And then it says in the same way, wives, verse 1, in the same way, husbands. So verse 7, we talk to the husbands. It says, likewise, in a way that Christ was submissive to the Father, husbands, Live with your wives in an understanding way. And the NIV it says consider, but that means know your wife. Know her. Know what makes her mad, glad, sad. Know everything about her. Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. I'm not going to talk about that. Let's keep going. <laughs> the next part is what I want you to see. Since they are heirs. H-E-I-R-S. Heir means co-ruler on Christ's throne of the things of God. So a woman has equal position as a man eternally. They have the same dignity. And, And he proves it. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. In other words, if you treat your wife like garbage... God's not going to listen to you. How dare you treat somebody that has worth and dignity like somebody that doesn't? That's what Peter's saying. But there is what I'm going to call a design to the way God has ordered the world and it's called basically mutual submission. Ephesians 5, he says, submit to one another. Submit to one another. And that means as I Fulfill my role, I'm submitting to my spouse out of reverence for Christ. So when men, in Ephesians 5, are told to basically be the head of their home, when they're told to lead the church, it's something that they don't do by nature, actually. And they are submitting by taking the role of lead to God. Actually, if you knew me by nature, my tendency. My tendency is to sit in the back and kind of just let everybody else do it. I, I'm happy not doing anything. But I know God has, and he, and he shows you in a lot of ways, he says, Chris, lead. I, don't, I really don't want to. No, but you need to. Most men don't like to lead, honestly. They'd rather go out in the woods and hunt and go into their engines. And did you know, according to Genesis, wives don't mind leading. They're really good at it. They'll take over if you let them. That's what Genesis says. Don't blame me. It says, wives, your submission is to let them lead, to come under their umbrella of protection. Because we've been designed differently. Complementarianism means we're two pieces of a puzzle, and when we work and fit well together, I'm telling you, it works. And the reason I say this is I say it for two reasons. I've seen it personally in my home, but I've also seen it being a pastor for 20 years here. Most of the time I'm doing marital counseling, post-marital counseling. One of the number one problems is roles. If you want to read a good book, Love and Respect, the idea is that men need to love their wives, and if they love their wives, it makes them easy for the wife to respect their husband. And it makes that makes it easy for the husbands to... Love their wives, which makes it easy for the wives to respect their husband. But you get that spinning the other way, where husbands don't love their wife, then wife really doesn't want to respect their husband, and then they don't want to love their wife, and it really gets out of hand. Bad. And it's all about roles. So the third reason why we believe this is our conviction, it's kind of what I've been talking about. Throughout Scripture, church is designed to be God's family, which is modeled by the husband and wife family. And you can look that up later. Here's some verses for you to read later. Go ahead and hit it. Timothy 3, 5, 14 to 15, it says, the church is God's household. So it should be run like a family to some degree, where the husband leads, the man leads. So as I say that, remember last week I said I can read your mind, so I've read some minds. I can hear you. And some of you are saying, so... Does that mean God is a male chauvinist pig? Does God hate women? Because some of you feel that when I just said this. And I'll say, no. A thousand times no. Here's the problem. Number one, I'll say this. And I've, and I want to read some stuff out of this. this. is a great book if you ever want to get it. It's called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, A Response to Evangelical Feminism. Theological circles, we are what's called complementarian. That means we do believe there's proper roles. There is a group of theologians that are called egalitarians. Egalitarians believe the verse where it says there is neither male nor female, slave nor free, all are one in Christ, They believe that verse has knocked out any kind of distinctions, any kind of role distinctions, any kind of gender distinctions. But they aren't reading it in context. If you read it in context, it's about faith. Everybody receives faith equally, but you've got to read it in context. But they'll take that verse to mean, you can't tell me men and women are any different. And that's what's called egalitarian Christian feminism. And they will say, if this teaching I've just done today kind of paints God as a mean man and it makes it patriarchal, well, here we go again, men want to lead. Well, first of all, let me tell you about Christ's leadership. Christ did not come to be served, but to serve, and he gave his life as a ransom for many, and every leader is supposed to example that. So you can put it like this, biblical leadership is to serve you first. Men, men, who have leadership, never come up. They should never be here to get power and title and dignity. Jesus mocked the Pharisees for that. We serve. Listen to this statement. This is a great statement. Why do some godly people resist the teaching of male leadership so energetically? Energetically, because there's a lot of resistance to this teaching. One reason is a smothering male domination asserted in the name of male headship, meaning when men smother and dominate, saying, because they are the head. When truth is abused, a rival position, in this case, feminism, that lacks logically compelling power can take on psychologically compelling power. Even though it's not really logical to scriptural teaching psychologically, I can't stand men in charge because they always dominate. That's what he's saying. But male domination is a personal moral failure. It's a moral failure, not a biblical doctrine. If we define ourselves out of a reaction to bad experiences, we will forever be translating our pain in the past into a new pain for ourselves. We define ourselves, listen to this, not by personal injury because I've been hurt by fathers and bad leaders, so I don't want dads and male leadership, if we define ourselves not by personal injury, not by fashionable hysteria, it's fashionable to hate men these days. It's fashionable. It's kind of cool. Not even by personal variation and diversity, but by the supra-personal pattern of sexual understanding taught here in Holy Scripture. In other words, let Scripture define the role. Which leads us to the second point. Don't let culture define the role. Cultural doesn't define proper design. The culture doesn't know God. It's ignorant of God. You know what the culture thinks about the cross? It's foolishness. But we let the culture define roles so easily. One person writes, the pace of technological and social change within post-industrial societies has made us reserved about the answers of previous generations. In other words, because of all the change. And a change they write in women's education, the nature of housework, the involvement of women in work, because of that, we are reserved about the answers in previous generations, meaning we're kind of embarrassed because it just doesn't seem to work because women now are just as powerful as men in the workplace. Why do we let culture define proper roles? We shouldn't. That's what they're saying. And then the third thing is this, is that radical feminism, when you really look at it, It's an experiment that's failed and is failing. Here's what radical feminism teaches. I am not talking about dignity for women or equal respect and dignity. That's biblical feminism. Radical feminism has three tenets. Listen to them. And we fall prey to these. Number one, physical differences apart, men and women are the same. Infant boys and girls are born with virtually the same capacities, and if raised identically, would develop identically. No, but they believe that. Number two, men occupy positions of dominance because the myth that men are more aggressive has been perpetuated by the practice of raising boys to be mastery-oriented and girls to be person-oriented. If this stereotyping ceased, leadership would be equally divided between the races meaning the reasons why men lead in the workplace is because we teach them to be aggressive. So what we need to do is not have such aggressive recesses and we need to kind of calm the boy down because if we do, then they won't be so aggressive. No, that they're, they're made different. And then the third thing that radical feminism teaches is this. True human individuality and fulfillment will come only when people view themselves as human repository of talents and traits without regard to sex. Meaning, quit looking on the outward if you have long hair or whatever. Just look at their talents. We're all equal. There's no roles. There's no role identification. And this kind of teaching is destroying people. Listen to this statistic. This is just one. There's hundreds of them. The book The Boys' Fathers writes, we have found that unlike the majority of children in America... 67% of boys with sexual problems, that would mean transgenderism or even wanting sex changes, 67% of these boys were not living in a home with their biological father. In fact, the biological father was absent for nearly all of the boys who had been diagnosed as having the most profoundly disturbed sexual role adjustment. In other words, one of the biggest problems for boys is when there is no dad. They don't know what it looks like. I read another statistic. This is bizarre. Take a baby from the age of zero to five. What do you think the average amount of time a father spends with that kid in the United States? Two minutes. That's disturbing. So does God, is he a male chauvinist? In fact, I'll just be honest with you. If the design works well, it's, and I I don't, like I'm not here to say I'm great or anything, but I lived in a home where I had a, I had a brilliant mom. My mother's brilliant. By the time she was about 16, 17, she read Byron and all the Shakespeare stuff, and she actually understood it. Like people who tell you they read Shakespeare, they really don't. Understand it. I mean, really. Under my mom, I'd read. I'd, I'd read a passage to my mom, and she taught me exactly what it means. My mom was a college newspaper editor. She interviewed a lot of famous people, William Buckley, Rosalind Carter, other people, and she wrote it in the newspaper. My mom was very smart, but my mom always let my dad lead and enjoyed it. My dad was the worst speller you'd ever. He spelled my sister's name wrong on her birth certificate. Tamra, he spelled it instead of T-A-M-A-R-A, T-A-M-R-A. So she's Tamara instead of Tamara or Tamara. My mom said, Don, that's wrong name. Anyhow. But he she never she never like knocked him down for that. She always enjo- she enjoyed his leadership. And because of that, we as children were free in that. I, I don't know how to explain, it just worked. It works. So, second thing about elders. What is the character quality of elders? Let's read. There's one word that should jump out in the book of Titus. Look at Titus. I'm going to read 6 and 7. There's one phrase that should jump out. See if it jumps out. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and the children of believers and not open to charge of debauchery and subordination for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. If you notice, it jumps out at you above reproach. What is above reproach? Sinless. They need to be sinless. No, no, no. 1 John says everybody sins. Everybody sins. And if you ever have a pastor that acts like they're sinless, it's bad. And if you ever have a pastor or a leader that acts like they're sinless, Talk to their wives, and it's over. The case is done. It's over. But above reproach literally means this. It means two things. In a public forum, meaning in the public community, there's a, they have a good name. There's no lawsuit against them. They, they, people aren't taking them to court. In the public domain, if you go down the street and say, hey, what do you think of that guy? He's a good guy. Yeah, I don't have anything wrong with him. But in the moral where I'm gonna say underneath, abrupt reproach means if you lift up the mask underneath, is it clean or I remember one time I went to the backyard, I was cleaning in our backyard and there was this just this piece of plywood. I went to lift it up. It was nice on the top. I lifted it up and all kind of worms and caterpillars and millipedes and slugs were under there. Abrupt reproach means when you lift up my life and really look inside, I don't have that stuff best way to put it, I'll tell you who's not above reproach, Harvey Weinstein. He is not above reproach. So there's two areas we talk about. Let me read through them. The first, he's going to talk about being above reproach at home. And then he's going to talk about being above reproach when you are alone. So first, at home. Listen to what he says. If anyone's above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So the first thing is he says, how are they doing at home? Because your home is the model for the church. If they can't, it says in Timothy, do good at home, how do you expect them to do good in the church? And so at home, there's really two things. I'd say, first of all, they're husbands of one wife. In this culture, there's a lot of polygamy. Men had a lot of different wives. He's saying, no. No, one wife. Timothy, they use the same phrase, and it says deacons need to be husbands of one wife. And the idea is a one-woman kind of man. His eyes aren't wandering. He's not having flirtatious relationships with other people. He's loyal and loves his wife. Here's how you tell if you're a husband of one wife. You'll go running a 5K with your wife when she asks you to. I did yesterday. <laughs> will you run with me? I don't want to run a five K. Come on, nobody All right, I'll run a five K. I didn't die. I'm here. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Yay. And we are it says here your children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. This is a tough one because some people will judge a pastor if his children are a little rambunctious, or even if they don't believe later on, ah, he can't be a pastor. The whole idea is underneath the care of this pastor in his home, do his kids flourish under his care? Are they taught about Christ? Do they receive? Even listen? Are they accepting to the things that are taught about Christ? Or do they go party? That's what debauchery is. They're partiers, man. They're the... They're the kid that at two o'clock in the morning, screaming his car down Petridge, 180 miles an hour, after he just got out of the raise part. You know, eh. is he that kind of kid, or is he the kind of kid that's not insubordinate but respects the parents, listens, wants their advice, and really the way the child responds to advice kind of gives light to the way the dad is. So that's the home. How about are they above reproach alone? Listen to what it says. For an overseer is God's steward. This is verse 7. God's steward. Steward means one in place of God. So the servant who God left there in place of him. So, in a way, a steward should act like God in his absence. So, verse 7. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant. What's that mean? There's an older word for that. It's called froward. Froward is the guy that stands up here and says, if any of you ever disagree with me, it's probably because you're wrong. There's there's leaders like that. Anything, if you ever, if you ever take that tone with me, do you know what's going to happen to you? Because I'm always right. I'm always right. That's what froward is. It's a heart that is callous, and pushes people underneath them. But a non-froward person is like, tell me, how do you really feel? It's an accepting, I want to know. Don't be froward. Second thing here is quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. So they need to have self-control. They need to have self-control with what they put into their body, drink, I would even say food, self-control. They need to have self-control when it comes to their emotions. Are they angry? Because you guys aren't doing what I say. So I'm, like, ah, I'm mad all the time. Ah. There's some leaders like that. You gotta, you're scared to talk to them because they just, well, get out of here. What's wrong with you? Like Man, what is wrong with that guy? There's leaders like that. Self-control with money. We ask you to sacrifice, but we can't. Third thing is hospitable. This is how you are to outsiders. Hospitable doesn't mean a pastor has all the new attenders over to his house every Sunday at 2 o'clock. See? He's hospitable. No, hospitable means you invite people into your life, you like people. Like when you're with people, you really like them. I gave this illustration a while ago to try to explain what, it, what is what is the heart of a pastor. And I'll tell you about Derek Max. He's not here, so he has no idea I'm saying this. He's with our teens. He's a lot of them. When he started working with us, it was 1997. He came from Cornerstone. He was interning. And I had a number of interns that wanted to intern as youth pastors, and I would have them over to my house and talk to them a lot of times after youth group. So I'd say, what do you think of, Derek, what do you think of Stacey Manson? Who, Derek would know exactly what she's like. I'd ask some other leaders, what do you think of that, that Brian guy? I don't, who are you talking about? I don't, I don't know who you're talking about. I could ask Mike Buckner about people. He'll tell you exactly who, he, who they are. But then you have some other leaders. They don't even know. A, a person who's hospitable knows the person they are leading. That's how you pastor. A pastor knows where to take people, where they're at, and how to lead them. They're hospitable. They invite people into their life. And then the final thing is they know God. Listen to how it ends. Not only do they really know people, they know God. It says, uh, hospitable, lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined upright, they do the right things, holy, they're pure, disciplined, they have control over their body, in their life, in their mind. So that's the elder's character. And really that should be your character too, because you're supposed to be imitators. Then the third thing is really simple, the final thing, what is their responsibility? It's not hard, it's pretty clear verse 9 He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it So there's something that's interesting in here you notice the end it says rebuke those who contradict it the idea is some people might worm in to try to twist the church no we're going straight we're staying pure we're heading in a direction we're keeping things in order And we do that with this. So an elder needs to know this book. They need to really know this book. They need to know, that means you notice, they need to know doctrine. They know how to instruct others, how to take it and apply it. So they need to instruct others with sound doctrine. Not just be good teachers, but to be able to lead people with this, like a staff, like a light in a dark place. But they also need to hold to this and this only. Some pastors, some priests, know all of the councils of uh, 80, you know, uh, 325, the Council of Clement and St. Ignatius, and they know the canon law, they know all that stuff, but do they know this? Do they know this and this alone? Well, I know what Luther and Calvin, all those guys say, but do you know this? Because this is where God's life comes from. I think this is one of the best verses that talks about the responsibility elder. It's found in Jeremiah. Turn to Jeremiah 15. This is an amazing verse. And it's for all of us, actually. Jeremiah 15. And uh, verse 16. Jeremiah was a young guy when he was called by God. Some people think he was 12, some 18, maybe 20. And he had to go confront the sins of Israel. It's a terrible job. But verse 16, God's talking to Jeremiah, and he says, and Jeremiah's talking to God, and he says, Your words were found, and I ate them. is saying, it's kind of like, I took your words in. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. I sat alone because your hand was upon me, for you had filled me with indignation. Meaning that when he started really understanding the word, he saw the world as it is. Verse 18, why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Will you be to me like a deceitful brook, like waters? It's talking about how God, when he gives them a word, sometimes he's kind of rejected by people, feels alone. But verse 19, therefore thus says the Lord, if you return, I will restore you. And you shall stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth. The NIV says, if you utter worthy words, not worthless, you will be my spokesman. The people shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. And I'll make you, to this people, a fortified wall of bronze. The idea is that if you speak my words and you don't turn to the culture around you and the customs and be turned to them, if you don't joke, you know, just change your language so everybody likes you, but they start changing because of you and the Word, then you're my servant. That's what an elder does. Stand strong, doesn't change by the world outside. They eat the Word, delight in it, and lead others to it. I opened up with this story about Lord of the Flies, that rotten book about an island. But did you know that was written in the 1950s? A hundred years before that, there's another book about an island with the same characters named Ralph and Jack. And actually, Lord of the Flies was written as an anti. The book was named The Coral Island. It was a very popular book in Britain. And the person, William Golding, who wrote The Lord of the Flies, didn't like the book. Actually, William Golding, if you research his life, He was wicked to the core. The guy who wrote Lord of the Flies, he's a bad dude. Like his personal behavior was sick. And he didn't like this book. I wonder why. You know what this book was about? Boys who were shipwrecked on an island. And when they were shipwrecked on an island, they didn't turn wild. They actually turned good. They met the local inhabitants, and they saved them from pirates. They met a Christian missionary, and they started teaching the the people on the island Christianity. And William Golding didn't like it at all because it was too nice, too good. Listen to one of the phrases in this book. And I have always found, though I am unable to account for it, that daylight banishes many of the fears that are apt to assail us in the dark. And Lord of the Flies, he tried to say just the opposite. Everything's dark and fear will overwhelm you and distort you. This book says when you bring light to the dark, the fear runs away. Did you know that the church is the light in the dark? Look at what it says. And I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. We aren't here just to be healed from pain, which is true. That's why we do come. We aren't here just to have times where we enjoy celebrating God. That's true. Sometimes we laugh. That's good. But we are here to shine as Christ's pure bride in a world that's desperately looking for it. We are here to bring hope. We are here to walk straight and be in order. We are here to serve you. I'm going to invite Jared to come on up and lead us in a song about this. Let's bow in prayer. And I just ask you to just allow God, allow his leadership, but also imitate Be a light. Be a light. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this day. And more important, we thank you, God, for a place to tell the truth. Not many people tell the truth anymore. A place where you're not, so far, you're not stoned for telling the truth. Thank you for that. But I also pray, God, that your truth will set us free to be who we're supposed to be. We love you, Father. It's in Christ's name we pray.